6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. The chapter labels are man's edition about the 15th century, so there's no significance in chapter numbers, candidly. However, it's an easy way to remember the two passages. One is double the other. So let's pop into Ezekiel chapter 28. Now what makes this provocative is that Ezekiel does the same thing that Isaiah does. It happens that Ezekiel is taking off after the king of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon were the major cities of that area that we probably know as Phoenicia, on the coast, north of Israel, a maritime province of a great power in its day. And the ruler of Tyre is the subject of Ezekiel's tirade here. And if you go through Ezekiel uh, 28 and move on through about verse 10, it's straightforward Ezekiel beating up on <laughs> the king of Tyre. But then verse 11 on, Ezekiel does the same thing Isaiah does. He shifts gears. Verse 11, Moreover the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, and don't be thrown by that phrase. That's just an idiom that uh, Ezekiel uses of himself, or God uses of meaning son of a man, you mortal man. That's what he I mean. It's, don't confuse it with the title of Jesus Christ as used in the New Testament. It's just a phrase that in Ezekiel is, is, is the common nickname, if you will, of Ezekiel. Son of man, take up the lamentation upon the king of Tyre. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God. So this is God speaking through Ezekiel. He's speaking to the king of Tyre, but the subject becomes obvious. It goes far beyond any mortal person by any name. Finishing off verse 12, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, period. Well, quaint King James English for saying that you, whoever he's talking to, sealest up the sum. That is, you're the peak. You're all there is. You're at the top of the heap as far as wisdom and you're perfect in beauty. Well, I don't know who the king of Tyre was. A guy by the name of Josephus tells it was an idiobolus by then. And I haven't met him, but I don't think he was the wisest man ever walked the earth, nor was he the most beautiful guy that ever walked the earth. That's my premise. But that's what this says. Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. We'll quickly see in verse 13, no way does any mortal man fit the character that is being addressed here. Verse 13, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. You've got to be kidding. Who was in Eden in the garden of God? I can think of three people I know, right? The Nachash, the shining one, and Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve blew it, so they got kicked out. But I mean, that, the population, I think, was rather limited. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Is he talking to Adam or Eve? I don't think so. He's talking to the power behind the king of Tyre. Do you see the parallel? It's intriguing to me that in both cases, both glimpses we get, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, the same mechanics are used here. 
This guy that was in Eden, he sealed up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You know, we've got to start stripping away some of our misconceptions. We think of Satan as evil and therefore that he's ugly. If evil was ugly, you and I would not have the problem we got with temptation. Right? I won't ask for a show of hands. Perfect in beauty. Satan was perfect in beauty and full of wisdom. Is he so smart? How'd he get in such trouble? The same way you and I do, through pride. And by the way, it's just a small point, footnote, pops into my mind. Recognize that the place that you will fail is not in your weak suit, it's in your long suit. That may come as a surprise. I'm not saying you won't fail with your weaknesses either. We probably want to cover all bases. We'll fail with everything we got. But, <laughs> but I'd like you to think hard about our friend, your friend and mine, Peter. Boy, Peter had strengths and weaknesses, but boy, if you were going to list his strengths, the one thing Peter had was courage, boldness. We identify with Peter because he's ready, fire, aim kind of guy. He had a medical problem. He had foot and mouth disease. But other than that, Peter was courageous. In Gethsemane, he draws a sword, slices off the ear of the high priest's servant, right? By the way, do you know why Christ healed it? Why did Christ heal the high priest's servant's ear? Save Peter's life, you betcha. Interesting thought. He had a lot for Peter to do later. Now, how did Peter blow it? By denying Christ? Three times before the cock crowed twice? Of all the ways you and I would have predicted Peter would stumble and fall, you would assume that he would do it by being excessively bold, not showing, showing some judgment. We'd never expect him to cower, hide, and curse that he ever knew the Lord. You follow what I'm saying? So all of us here are probably conscious of that long suit that you have, that particular set of skills that makes you exceptional. Watch out. It may shock you. I won't get into the personal thing. It may shock you that I have a long suit. But I can tell you where I fail the worst is in my longest suit. I used to preach this, and I had to taste it once again. You will stumble in your longest suit. Why? Because the root problem is pride. The ego. Okay, Lord, I can handle it from here. Oh, yeah? Oh. Anyway, so here's Satan, full of wisdom who did some pretty stupid things. Now one of the questions that will run through your mind is, gee, if Satan is so bright, so smart, how can he be doing today such bizarre things as opposing God? You're going to fight God who knows the end from the beginning, who's outside time altogether. You, a however powerful, still relative to God, a puny being, you're going to fight God? You've got to be kidding. You must be stupid. No. He fell through pride and he sinned, and sin begets sin. And the more sin you're in, the more sin it begets. And he's had centuries to become totally psychotic. Doesn't mean he's not very bright. There's nothing more terrifying than to be opposed by someone who's psychotic and very resourceful. Don't assume that someone that's psychotic is stupid. The most terrifying kind of... Uh, aberration you can face, even in, in, in worldly terms, is someone who's psychotic and very, very bright. You follow what I'm saying? Let's continue here. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Let's find out a little bit about Eden. 
Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the tobaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. Gee, that's a little strange. What are all these precious stones doing in Eden? Some scholars say, well, this, this sort suggests an Eden that's prior to and different from the garden that Adam and Eve was put in. I don't buy that because the garden of God was mentioned here earlier in the verse. But I'll tell you what those stones probably do mean, in my opinion. Those stones are a classical way for the ancients to describe colored light. See, that was their way of expressing colored light. God is light. Adam and Eve apparently were clothed with light prior to their fall. That's what causes me to suspect the dimensionality they enjoyed goes vastly beyond anything you and I can imagine. No one says they're limited to three dimensions, to my knowledge. I'm not saying that to sell that idea. I'm saying it only to stretch your mind, to stretch your horizon here. But the point is, these precious stones show up two other places. There are twelve stones that make up the stones of the breastplate of the high priest in the tabernacle. Those same stones also show up in the book of Revelation relative to the New Jerusalem. They're in the backwards order. Several things in the book of Revelation are echoes of things in the Old Testament, but in reverse order. And that could occur for any of several reasons. One reason is they are on opposite sides of the cross from a time domain point of view. Or simply, you're seeing them from opposite sides of the time domain, and that's a whole other study. But anyway, here we are again with all these precious stones or semi-precious stones, which are simply classical ways, classical idioms to describe clothed with light. Now, if you and I were trying to describe this, we have a richer vocabulary because we, we, could, we have a common ground of special effects from Hollywood movies and other ways to somehow describe these strange extraterrestrial, if I can use that expression, uh, kinds of things. And Ezekiel used the best he had at his disposal that was understandable here. But it goes on something else here. The workmanship of thy timbrels and thy flutes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Hey, some interesting insight. Did you know that Lucifer was a singer? He had an incredible musical skill. How do I know that? From the last part of this verse. The workmanship of thy timbrels and of thy flutes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. The Bible seems to give us the impression that Lucifer was the most elegant creation God made. Bear in mind, underline the word creation. He did not have pre-existence. He was created. By the way, who created him? Jesus. Right on. God, yes, that's a comfortable phrase. More specifically, Jesus. John tells us that in John chapter 1. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus created Satan. I mention that because you'll see books in bookstores, you know, between Christ and Satan, and you'll find you, we commonly use expressions describing Satan as Christ as antithetical, as adversaries. That's giving Satan too much credit. He is no match, no direct adversary of Jesus Christ himself. That's a joke. Jesus is going to destroy him with the brightness of his coming. So on the one hand, we don't want to dismiss Satan casually. On the other hand, we also can run the risk of exaggerating him in theological terms. He's a created being. Prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. I think the Holy Spirit is emphasizing that because as powerful as he is, he's a created being. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Well, this is one of the places that the Old English is a little quaint. The word anointed 
is equivalent to us appointing and authorizing in, in, a, in a position to be anointed. Yes, we think of anointed with oil. That's a specific thing for the priesthood. But to be anointed had to have the mandate, the authority for a position. He was the anointed cherub. Aha! See, we know now his category of creation. He is a cherub, one of the cherubim. We only know of five in the Bible. The four that surround the throne of God, whose 24-hour-a-day mission, if I can use that phrase, is to announce, protect, and, and uh, manifest God's holiness. As we, see him, as we see them in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Revelation, we notice that the continual mission is some way, it's sort of the palace guard, it's sort of the, the mastered arms, it's somehow tied up with God's most inside ring of protection, if you will. But there's a fifth, and that's Satan, Lucifer, who fell. But this guy was the anointed cherub that covereth, or phrasing it in our vernacular, he was the guy in charge. He was the anointed cherub that covereth. He was over everything. He was numero uno. Or, to be more precise, he was right under numero uno and aspired to be numero uno. If I can use perhaps rather clumsy idioms here. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. See, now when you see this and you tie it to Isaiah 14, you see, you've got the big picture him in charge. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon, also upon the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He wanted to displace his boss. Verse 14, back in Ezekiel, Thou art anoint the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created. Do you notice the Holy Spirit emphasizing that? There it is again. He's created. Thou wast perfect, complete, be more precise, in the ways from the day that thou wast created, Till iniquity was, you know, every time I see the word until or till in the Bible, I almost always mark it. It seems to be a very important connective or milestone in concept. He was perfect until. Visualize yourself before your boss. Hey, your record was fantastic until. Hey, you were really neat until. You don't really want to hear the rest of the sentence, do you? <laughs> thou was perfect in the ways from the day that thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of the merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy... And the word here in the Hebrew means traffic or merchandise. It also means slander. See, the traffic can mean to traffic like marketing. It can also mean to traffic like rumors and so forth. See, the, the same root can mean either slander or merchandise. Therefore I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It will devour thee. I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. 
All they that know thee among the people shall be appalled at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. And from here on, Ezekiel returns to Sidon, the sister city, so to speak, of Tyre, and goes on. But here's this interesting insertion, sort of a expanded footnote or something, where Ezekiel in the one case, Isaiah in the other, gives us important glimpses into the realities that lie behind these thrones. At this point, it might be also provocative as we sort of explore this rather strange area, to explore another glimpse that's sort of related. It's not about Satan directly, and yet it sort of is. As we're sort of using this occasion to springboard from Isaiah 14 to get a couple of reference points here, turn with me to my favorite friend, Daniel. And specifically, I'd like to turn to Daniel chapter 10. And we can learn a lot of practical stuff out of Daniel 10. So I think it fits the mood of the evening. As long as we're scaring ourselves to death, let's uh, do a complete job. Huh? Daniel chapter 10. The first six chapters of Daniel are narrative of his incredible career. And the last six chapters of the 12-chapter book are his visions. And uh, chapter 7, of course, the famous overview of Gentile dominion. Chapter 8 is an amplification of, uh, of the Persians and the, uh, the Greeks, an incredible chapter. Chapter 9, of course, the famous chapter of the 70-week vision. Chapter 10 is the preamble to the close of the book, which includes 11 and 12, a, a, a wrap-up super summary of a lot of things, and I won't get into that tonight, but the point is chapter 10 is, in effect, setting the stage for two chapters that are really mind-blowing following. They are so mind-blowing that most liberal scholars have had to try to make Daniel dated after the fact. they got all kinds of problems doing that because Daniel predicts the exact day that Jesus presents himself as king, and Daniel is part of the Old Testament translated in the Greek three centuries before Christ was born, so the critics can chew on that for a while. You and I have no problem with that because uh, we can save ourselves lots of library work by noticing that Jesus Christ authenticates Daniel. He speaks of Daniel 9, says, speaks of Daniel the prophet. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have to screw around with who wrote Daniel. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you've got bigger problems than the authorship of Daniel. That's another story. So Daniel in chapter 10, in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. Don't confuse Belteshazzar with Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the, the king of Babylon when it fell to the Persians. Belteshazzar is the Babylonian name for Daniel, Daniel being his, his uh, Israel name. Anyway, the thing was true. The time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now you need to understand that Daniel was a very devout spiritual man, and one of his practices was to fast. There are all kinds of fasts. There are absolute fasts where you eat nothing but drink water. There are also partial fasts where you just give up certain things to get you in a spiritual frame of mind. And we could talk a lot about fasting. I'll just make a few comments in passing that fasting is appropriate even today. The New Testament calls for it, and there is fasting. Don't do it without expert advice. There are some booklets in the bookstore that will tell you about fasting so you prepare yourself properly. And doing a three-day fast is a very constructive thing. Longer than three days is even easier. First three days of a fast are the tough ones. After that, it's a breeze up until 40. But... Um, I do encourage you not to fast without instruction, because if you do a longer than a three-day fast and you eat something, you can kill yourself. 
because your, your system shuts down. It's very healthy. It's very appropriate for many things, but you want to do so when you have good advice and, and uh, leave it at that. So I encourage you to explore it. I, ex I encourage you not to do it without exploring it. In any case, though, Daniel here was fasting. He ate no pleasant bread, neither came any flesh or wine in his mouth. That implies he did allow himself some things for during these three weeks. But in any case, he's doing this for lots of reasons, not the least of which is to prepare himself spiritually. When he does this, after 21 days, after three weeks, a strange thing happens. Verse 4, at the, at the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is the Hittichel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with the fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes like lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet color like to polished bronze, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Scholars argue about this. I personally believe this was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. That will raise some issues. Some scholars believe he was just a very senior angel because he ends up having to get help from Michael. And that's why they don't think it was Jesus. They think it was simply another heavy angel of some kind uh, for lots of reasons that are, we don't have to deal with tonight. I suspect it was Jesus Christ. At this point, all you need to know is there are two views. They're both defendable. But in any case, this guy is an important person as far as the issue here is concerned. In any case, verse 7, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. See, that's one of the reasons I believe it was Jesus Christ, because I notice every time someone sees God, the throne of God or what have you, the immediate reaction is not awe and elation, it's despair in terms of recognizing the incredible gap that exists between God and the person involved. And Daniel's no exception. He wasn't excited about this. He says, the, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption and I retained no strength. He's undone by this. Verse 9, yet I heard the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee. Stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. So the first insight, for some reason, this messenger was dispatched when Daniel started to fast. See, how long did it take him to get there? 21 days. Okay. Why did it take him so long? Verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, when we first read this, we fall into the error of assuming that kings and princes here are the kinds of kings and princes you and I can touch, feel, or write notes to. That's not what he's talking about. You notice he says, Michael, one of the chief princes. Now, Michael we know. Who's Michael? A spirit being, an angel. So these labels of kings and priests are ranks, but not human ranks. 
And the insight we're going to get here is, apparently, there is a prince of the kingdom of Persia. What, what was the empire that was running the world, as far as Daniel was concerned, at that time? Chapter 10, verse 1. It was, namely, Cyrus, the king of Persia. Is the king of Persia, is Cyrus the one talking in verse 13? No, it is a spirit being that somehow is behind the Persian empire. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in twenty days. In other words, this guy fought and withheld this messenger. For how long? Twenty-one days. The chapter doesn't bring this up, but I have to ask you, isn't it provocative that Daniel was fasting for twenty-one days, and this messenger, it took him twenty-one days to break through and get, get arrive? Conjecture. What would have happened if Daniel decided to go off his fast after 20 days or 19 days? It doesn't say this, but you can't help but surmise that somehow Daniel's fasting is linked to the spiritual battle going on for this messenger to get through. What's opposing him? Some kind of spirit being called the prince of the kingdom of Persia, but we're not through yet. And by the way, he withstood me one in twenty days, and lo, Michael, this is one of the reasons some scholars don't believe this is Jesus Christ, because he wouldn't have that problem. You follow me? That's, that's the other side of the argument. That's why I don't want to get into that here. The main point is, we have Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Clearly, Michael and this messenger together were able to subdue or get through the prince of the kingdom of Persia. He says, verse 14, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. What's going to happen after this chapter is that this messenger is now going to give Daniel a two-chapter detailed history of what's going to happen to Israel from that day to the very end when God wraps up the whole thing. That's why 11 and 12 are very exciting chapters. But before he gives him the actual content of the message, he's sharing with Daniel the problems he's had getting through to Daniel. Verse 15, And when he had spoken such words unto me, and I set my face toward the ground, I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke, and said unto him, Who stood before me? O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remain no strength in me, neither is there a breath left in me. Daniel is undone by this whole thing, obviously. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.